We're going to read this afternoon Titus 3, verses 1 to 11. Titus 3, verses 1 to 11. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. We're going to, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, divide this uh, section of Titus chapter 3 into two parts. What I want to do this afternoon is talk about uh, the hortatory section of the passage which is uh, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 8 to 11. And we'll say for next week, God willing, verses 3 to 7, where Paul has that uh, very compact description of the gospel of grace. There are a couple of things we want to notice about the uh, verses that we're going to be considering I think, first of all, that we have in verses um, 1 to 8, another one of those envelope or bookend type structures. We noticed one in chapter 2, where Paul begins by saying, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, and ends the chapter saying, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. You have a similar kind of thing here. In verse 1, he says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. And then in verse 8, I want you to affirm these things constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Notice the reference to good works again. So, in verses 1 to 8, we have one of these um, bookend structures in which Paul begins with exhortation and ends with exhortation and then enfolds within the uh, envelope structure 
the description of the gospel of grace. And he concludes the whole section that we're going to be considering then with some negative exhortations. Avoid foolish disputes, reject a divisive man. Now, one other thing that we should notice in general about this section is that the Apostle is here now instructing Titus about what to teach all the saints. In chapter 2, remember, the Apostle was teaching Titus or instructing Titus to teach various groups, different things to various groups, to older men, older women, and so on. But here, his instruction is for all the saints. Remind them, that is, remind all the saints there in the churches on the island of Crete to be subject to rulers and authorities. So the way we're going to divide this, uh, these verses then is we're going to take first the exhortations in verses 1 and 2. Then we're going to look at the exhortation in verse 8. And then we're going to close in the third part uh, with the exhortations in verses 9 to 11. And as I said, we'll save verses 3 to 7 for next week. So in verses 1 and 2, then, first of all, we have instruction to Titus to teach the saints to be subject to rulers and authorities and to obey. Now, the two words that the apostle uses here for those in authority, translated by the New King James as rulers and authorities, um, could perhaps be translated a little bit more precisely as principalities and authorities. That word that is here translated rulers is in fact in other New Testament passages translated as principalities. And I, I think that the difference between the two words then that the apostle uses is that that first word probably refers to those who are highest in authority. So that the apostle would refer in that principalities or first men or principal men to uh, Caesar, uh, to men who were at the pinnacle of government in, in local regions like at the time of Jesus, Pontius Pilate or King Herod, for example, those kinds of men, the, the highest of authorities. And then the, in the word authorities, he would comprehend all the other governmental officials to which the saints had to be subject and obedient. If we were going to make the same kind of distinction using the kinds of offices we see in our own government today, we would say perhaps that Principalities includes the president and the governor and the mayor and the Supreme Court justices of federal level and uh, state level and so on. And authorities, all those other authorities to which we must be obedient, like police officers, other judges, representatives, and so on. Those kinds of authorities. And what the apostle is uh, Indicating then by using these two words is that uh, in life, in, in our life in the state, there are many different authorities to which 
we must be subject. There's not just one ever, even in a, a monarchy where there's one man who stands at the pinnacle of all the government of the empire. Still, there are many other officials underneath him, ultimately answerable to him, and we are to obey also those officials, those authorities. So, that's one thing. Then, uh, we want to look also at the words he uses, especially that word, to be subject. This is the same word that he uses when he says to young women in chapter 2 that they should be subject to their husbands. And also the word that he uses about uh, bondservants, that they should be subject to their masters. So the apostle has singled out different relationships here in this epistle different relationships of authority and obedience, the subjection of wives to husbands, the subjection of slaves to masters, the subjection of citizens to civil authorities, and has pointed us to the truth then that there are all kinds of different areas in life and all kinds of of different um, uh, aspects of life in which we have to be subject to authority. This whole idea of authority and subjection to authority is one that permeates, in fact, all of our lives. And it permeates all of our lives because this is the way God created the world from the beginning. There are some who say that God instituted, for example, civil government in response to sin, that civil government became necessary because of sin. I myself am not inclined to that position. I think rather that God established authority from the very beginning and that even if the world had remained unfallen, these different types of government would have come into our lives because God created us in such a way that we need to be subject to authority in different areas. And so when God created Eve, he created her to be a help meet for Adam or suitable to Adam, one who was subject to him. And if Adam and Eve had had children there in the Garden of Eden before the fall, those children would have been commanded to be subject to their parents. And if the world had continued unfalling, unfallen, undoubtedly, I think, uh, civil government would have developed and so on. God created us to be in these relationships of authority and obedience. And we are all, in various ways, uh, to be subject to authorities. Even those who are in authority in one area of life have to be subject to authorities in other areas of life. Thus, the king, who has absolute authority in his own sphere of operation in the state, must be subject to the elders of the church within the bounds of the church. This is how God has made us, how God has created the world. And he commands us to be subject then to the authorities who are over us, and in this case, particularly to the civil authorities. 
That's a very important aspect of life as a Christian, that we be subject to authority. In fact, I think that we may say that in the particular circumstances in which the Apostle says this, this is quite a remarkable thing for him to say. If it's true that Titus was written after the uh, first imprisonment of the Apostle Paul in Rome, and even if it's uh, Paul was never released from that first imprisonment and was uh, martyred during that first imprisonment, as some think, still Paul had, during the course of his life, suffered quite severely at the hands of civil authorities. He had been badly treated by the, uh, the Jewish leaders who had some civil authority, ecclesiastical authority as well, but some civil authority under the direction of the Roman governor. Uh, he had been badly treated by both Felix and Festus, who kept him unjustly in prison for uh, at least two years after he had been taken in the city of Jerusalem. And ultimately, of course, he suffered martyrdom, at least that seems to be the case, at the hands of the Roman emperor. But he does not say to the saints in these circumstances, be careful about uh, obedience to the civil magistrates. They they can be very wicked and they can do very uh, damaging things to you and, and to the church. Be warned against these civil magistrates. He says to them, still in the after his own experiences in this whole area, you should be subject to rulers and authorities, and you should obey. That's the fundamental command of God to us with regard to the civil authorities. We are quick to point out that the scriptures teach us that we must obey God rather than men, and that's certainly true. We must obey God rather than men. But the fundamental command with regard to civil authorities is obey, be subject. That's what God says. Keep their commandments. Do what they require of you. Be subject to them. So that's the first uh, thing that he asks Titus or urges Titus to teach the Christians there on the island of Crete. The second thing that he uh, urges him to teach is that we should be ready for every good work. Now, good works, of course, are those works which we do in obedience to the law of God, uh, to the glory of God, and out of faith. Those are the three things that Our Heidelberg Catechism teaches us belong to uh, doing good works. Those are the things that please God. Those things which are in obedience to his commandments, which are to the glory of his name, and which proceed from true faith. And Paul says to Titus, urge them to be ready for every good work. Notice that he does not um, single out any specific good works here. He's thinking in terms of the whole of the second table of the law. 
And he's saying you should be ready for these good works. These good works which have as the root commandment loving your neighbor as yourself. So they're not just those works then which, in which we refrain from injuring the neighbor on those occasions when we encounter him, but they are those works in which we actively seek to do good to our neighbor. And Paul says not only that we should be doing these good works, but that we should be ready for them. That is, we should, in our encounters with our neighbors, be mentally prepared for doing such good works, for loving our neighbor as ourselves and doing to him those things which we would want him to do to us. Now, what is, it, what is implied in that being ready for good works? Well, first of all, it means, I think, it implies being trained in the law, understanding the law of God. Even the natural man has, has some basic understanding of what God's law is. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 2, for example. And uh, it's certainly true that men know that murder is wrong and men know that adultery is wrong and, and so on. This has been the general understanding of fallen men through all the ages of the world. But nevertheless, that understanding of the law is perverted and corrupted by our fall into sin. And there are many things about that law of God that we openly reject or that we do not understand any longer. And we need to be trained in the law. We need to be taught what the law really means in all of its different implications and in all of its different applications to our lives. We need to uh, study the law. We need to, need to make it our meditation day and night. So that's first, being ready, being trained in the proper understanding of God's law. But there's also, in being ready for this, these good works, that we should be loving God with heart and mind and soul. The first and great commandment is love God. The second is love your neighbor. And that's not just to say that that second commandment is second to the first, is not as important as the first, but it's to say that the second commandment is dependent on the first, that we cannot love the neighbor unless we first love God. We cannot love the neighbor properly. We cannot love the neighbor in a manner that is pleasing to God unless we begin with love for God, that love with heart and mind and soul. So being ready for every good works means first love your God who has redeemed you from the bondage of sin and corruption. Love him with heart and mind and soul. And then, because you love God, and out of love for, the God, for God, love your neighbor. Being ready for every good works includes also, I think, a kindly disposition towards others. Not indifference to them, not... A, a greater interest in ourselves and our well-being than in the uh, well-being of our neighbor. Not a hatred of our neighbor, a fundamental hatred, which when we encounter the neighbor has to first be overcome before we can 
do any good to him, but a kindly disposition towards others. A, a readiness of sympathy for the troubles and afflictions and difficulties that others face. And of course, being ready for every good work means also to want to do them. To want to do good to our neighbors. All these things are part of that readiness. Understanding the law, loving God, having a kindly disposition towards others, and wanting to do good to others. Be ready, Paul says, for every good work. So that's the second part of these first two verses. The third thing is that he gives us a series then of uh, things in verse 2 in which he shows us the, the um, manner of our behavior towards others and the disposition, if you will, of our hearts towards others that, um, that underlies then the being ready for every good work. And there are four things there, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. To speak evil of no one, then. You cannot be ready to do good works to someone of whom you are speaking evil. You will be disinclined to do good works to those of whom you have been speaking evil. And you will be disinclined because your speaking evil of them shows a fundamental hatred of them. This is a very difficult commandment for us. And it's the reason I think that the scriptures so often urge us in this matter of controlling our tongues. We love to talk about others. And we love, sometimes even more than that, to be talking evil of others. It's one of the corrupt inclinations of fallen men that they delight in speaking evil of others and it needs to be fought against. We need to resist it. We need to fight against it. We need to uh, learn to master our tongues and instead of speaking evil to uh, build up by our words as much as possible the character, the reputation, and um, strength of our neighbors. The second thing is uh, to be peaceable. And this means to be not contentious. Paul uses this word also in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, uh, when he's listing the qualifications for elders, and he says that they should not be given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome. That's the same word as what we have here, not quarrelsome, not covetous. We must not be contentious, that is, we must not be always ready to pick a fight or to respond to injury by blasting the other person in whatever way is possible to us or by uh, immediately thinking about ways we can take vengeance. 
We're not supposed to be contentious. In fact, of course, uh, there are times when we must be uh, contentious. We, that is, at least, that we must contend for certain things, contend for truth and contend for righteousness. But we're not to be contentious by nature, by character, having a, a hair-triggered temper, being ready at a moment's notice to take up the cudgels against someone and to uh, attack him, either for his attack on us or because simply because we, for some reason or other, dislike him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Insofar as it is possible, the scriptures say, pursue peace with all men. We should love peace and contend only when we understand that it is necessary to do so in the light of God's own word. The third thing he mentions here is gentleness. Now this is a very difficult word to translate into the English It's used a few other times in the New Testament, and every one of those times we find it, it's translated as gentle. But it's broader in scope than gentleness. The King James, in fact, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, translates it as moderation, to be moderate. But what I want to do is uh, uh, read to you a short section from Trench's synonyms of the New Testament, because he he tries to get convey the meaning of this word. It expresses exactly that moderation. Notice that he picks up the translation of the King James Version, that moderation which recognizes the impossibility cleaving to all formal law of anticipating and providing for all cases that will emerge and present themselves to it for decision, which with this recognizes the danger that ever waits upon the assertion of legal rights, lest they should be pushed into moral wrongs, lest the highest right should in practice prove the highest injury which therefore urges not its own rights to the uttermost, but going back in part or in the whole from these, rectifies rectifies and redresses the injustices of justice. It is thus more truly just than strict justice would have been. So you get in this word, not just the idea of gentleness, but of gentleness in the application of justice. And he's talking to us, of course, in our personal relations. And he's saying, when you're dealing with your neighbors, don't push justice to the exclusion of compassion and gentleness. Deal kindly. Even if you have to, in some measure, deal with justice. Still deal kindly. Parents recognize this very readily, I think, in dealing with their children. They recognize that it's not, it's not good, a good thing simply to be just. They also have to be just with love, with kindness, and with gentleness. 
And God does this with us. He does not deal with us according to our sins or reward us according to our iniquities. If he did, we would all certainly perish. So that's what's contained in that word gentleness. And then you get also the word here, humility, showing all humility to all men. And this would probably be better translated as meekness, showing all meekness to all men. Again, I think Trench is helpful here in his description of this word. He, first of all, takes this word and he says that this meekness is required of us in relationship to God. The scriptural Meekness is not in a man's outward behavior only, nor yet in his relations to his fellow men, as little in his mere natural disposition. Rather, it is an inwrought grace of the soul. Notice he says this is possible only by grace. And the exercises of it are first and chiefly towards God. It is that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. So accepting his dealings with us, even his harsh dealings with us, as good, without disputing or resisting. Then he goes on to talk about this in relation to men. This meekness, however, being first of all a meekness before God, is also such in the face of men. And this is where Paul is wanting Titus to apply it, by the way meekness towards men, even of evil men, out of a sense that these, with the insults and injuries which they may inflict, are permitted and employed by God for the chastening and purifying of his elect. This was the root of David's meekness when Shimei cursed and flung stones at him, the consideration, namely, that the Lord had bidden him, that it was just for him to suffer these things, however unjustly, the other might inflict them. And out of like convictions, all true Christian meekness must spring. He that is meek indeed will know himself a sinner among sinners. And then he cites the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who did not revile when he was reviled by his enemies. So this meekness is the receiving of injury from others without the uh, immediate assertion of our own rights and response, but recognizing that we are sinners along with those who have sinned against us and deserving of the chastening hand of our God. So those are the three uh, things that the Apostle uh, addresses in verses 1 and 2. Obedience to those in authority, being ready for good works, and then the the attitude and disposition that uh, enables us to do those good works which God requires of us. Not speaking evil, being peaceable, being uh, meek and fair, or gentle and fair, and showing all meekness to all men. And that brings us then to verse 8 and the exhortation that we have there. Now the beginning of verse 8 refers to chapter, verses 3 to 7, so we're going to skip over that. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. 
The apostle is referring back to what he said in verses 3 to 7 there. And then he's saying, affirm these things constantly in order that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Notice he says there, those who have believed in God. Do you believe in God? Then this is applicable to you. You should be careful to maintain good works. But notice also the difference between this verse and verse 1. In verse 1, he says, be ready for every good work. Here he says, maintain good works. In other words, don't just be ready, but be doing good works. And don't just be doing good works, but be maintaining them from day to day throughout your life. We never get to take a vacation from doing good works. We never get to say to ourselves, I've done my good deed for the day. Now I can please myself for the rest of the day. Now the commandment is universally applicable to every moment of our lives, every day of our lives. Love your neighbor as yourself. Maintain good works. Keep on doing good works day after day after day. Do not grow weary of them. Be careful, in fact, to maintain good works. This is especially difficult, of course, in the face of opposition and and hatred from enemies to maintain good works. The temptation becomes very strong to respond with uh, harsh words, with vengeance, if it's possible, within our power with uh, male treatment, similar to the, at least, to the male treatment we have received from them. The apostle says, be careful to maintain good works. Vengeance does not belong to you, it belongs to God. You continue in good works. Because these things are good and profitable to men. And I think he means not only to brothers and sisters in the Lord, and to friends, but also to enemies. Remember what Peter says to wives, and he says, you do not know, if you're married to a non-believer, whether your good works will win your unbelieving husband. And the same can be said to us with regard to our enemies. Maintain good works, because you do not know how God might use those good works to save your enemy. Maintain good works towards your brothers who injure you, and towards your friends who sometimes make serious mistakes and uh, treat you badly. Maintain good works towards them because they're good and profitable for them as well. They are the means in our behavior by which God shows His grace working in us and wins our brother back to us again. And they are the things that are pleasing to God. These things, these good works, are good and profitable to men. And then finally, verses 9 to 11, 
We have here in verses 9 to 11 two exhortations. The first in verse 9, avoid foolish disputes, and so on. And the second in verses 10 and 11, reject a divisive man. Now, in that first list, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, we can be uh, reminded, of course, that the apostle here is talking to a situation there in Crete where it was particularly the Jews who were contradicting and who were raising opposition to the sound teaching of the gospel. That's very clear in chapter 1, the last part of that chapter. We talked about it at that time. And so he has in mind particularly these Jewish contradictors, these Jewish um, people who were, uh, some of them anyway, members of the church, but who had not shed some of that Jewishness which was not according to God's word, not according to God's law. They were often involved in foolish disputes or foolish questions. And Paul gives genealogies as an example of this. The Jews loved the genealogies and they were always going back to the genealogies and they were always discussing the genealogies and they were always exploring all the different implications and so on of these genealogies, but not in a way that was profitable. And they loved contentions, especially, Paul gives us the example here, strivings about the law. And is they were always engaged in questions like, how many miles may a man walk on the Sabbath day? May he pluck corn from the field as he's walking on the, by, on the way, by, uh, on the Sabbath day. They got involved in all these minutiae of the law and sometimes went far beyond what the law required in these matters. And they strove about these things and they made all kinds of trouble for themselves and others about these things while they were forgetting the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. So what Paul is talking about here is those uh, foolish questions and those uh, useless strivings that characterize the Jews in much of their discussion about the law. And, of course, uh, the church today can get wrapped up in this kind of silly uh, dispute, silly question as well. There are legitimate contentions about doctrine, about the law of God itself, things in which we need to defend the law, need to defend the truth. But Paul has in mind here those silly questions, questions like what's going to be the color of the carpet in the auditorium, or or whether a man may uh, wear a bow tie when he's preaching the gospel in the church, and things of that sort. Those are stupid questions. Paul says, avoid them. Don't get involved in that kind of question. Before you uh, begin to contend and before you begin to ask questions about something, ask yourself whether this is a matter really that is worth contention. Because all these silly contentions are unprofitable and useless. 
And that word unprofitable is the very opposite of the word that he uses in verse 8 when he says these things are good and profitable to men. He says maintain good works. They're profitable to men. Avoid foolish questions and contentions. They're unprofitable. They don't edify anyone. They do no one any good whatsoever. They're useless. Avoid them. Put them away. Seek peace in those things. And however strong your opinion may be about these minor matters, surrender your opinion to the opinions of others. It's not important enough, your opinion, in these minor contentions, these things that have nothing to do with truth and the realities of God's law. It's not worth contending about. Just leave your opinion unexpressed. Keep it to yourself. Avoid these foolish disputes. But there are those in the church who are not ready to lay down the cudgels about these kinds of questions, and they become divisive. Sometimes they're divisive about important matters as well. And so Paul talks about divisive men in verses 10 and 11. These are are factious men, men who, uh, by their um, contentious character and their desire to be picking fights, create factions in the church, as some in Corinth did when they were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, and so on. There are men who are, are given to that kind of factiousness and who break up the unity of the church and who, who break relationships between brothers, who create hatred and envy and strife between brothers because they are contentious about things that don't matter or because they're contentious about things that matter but don't know how to conduct contention properly in the in the right spirit and according to the word of God. There's, they simply become divisive. They're not seeking the unity of the church. They forget in their desire to establish their own opinion, they forget that they must be seeking the unity of the church and the peace of the church. And Paul says if you find such a man among you, then you must admonish him according to the pattern that Jesus has laid out in Matthew 18. Go to him. Tell him his sin. If he won't confess it, take a witness with you. And if he still won't confess it, tell it to the church. This is what he's referring to. This process is what he's referring to when he says the first and second admonition. If he won't repent of his divisiveness, of his factiousness, after the first and second admonition, reject him. That is, excommunicate him. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? Because such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. He's perverted. He's sinning 
He's condemned himself by his refusal to repent. You need to reject him. The unity of the church must be preserved in such a case. So that's the the admonitions. Now we're going to see next week, of course, that these admonitions or exhortations that the Apostle gives here are grounded in the Gospel as described by the Apostle Paul in in verses 3 to 7. And we'll see that relationship more clearly. But right now, of course, what we're seeing is the good sound instruction that the Apostle communicates to us through Titus about life, life in the world. Life as a Christian, life in relation to the civil magistrates, life in relation to all men, life in relation to our brothers and sisters in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to hear those admonitions. We need to uh, seek to obey them, to remember them, to apply them to ourselves. May God bless his word for our good.